If you would, open in your Bibles to the book of 1 John. We'll be looking at the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3 this morning. Uh, first, just if you don't know me, my name's Cooper Starnes. Uh, my wife, Hannah, my daughter, Allie Ray, are sitting over there. I'm the assistant pastor at uh, Hazelwood Presbyterian Church in Waynesville. And I think this is the third time I've been here before, so it's always a joy to drive up here and be with y'all and to see new faces as well. That's a joyful thing to see. So it's it's a pleasure to be here again this morning. Uh, so again, we're in 1 John chapter 2, the, towards the end there, and just as a way to kind of get us on the right track before we get to the text. If you are a college basketball fan, this is the time of the year right now because it is March Madness. And if you've been watching the end of the season, you've been gearing up for it. You've been waiting for it. You've been watching your team. But unfortunately, disappointment is likely imminent for you because either your team never made the tournament, your team has already lost in the tournament, But if your team is in, more than likely they're going to lose. Chances are only one team, or not chances are, only one team can be really happy at the end of the tournament. And maybe it just might be UNC fans like me who had to suffer through a rough game yesterday. Uh, But I digress. But some people, see, me and my wife, we're Carolina people. We love Carolina. We're going to cheer for them nonstop. But some people don't care so much about their team. Some people don't care so much about the game. What some people really want to focus on are the brackets. They're all about getting the right bracket put together. When I was a kid, you got the bracket in the newspaper, and I don't know if they still do this or not, and it's a hard copy, and me and my siblings either shared it or didn't share so well and fought over it and worked out our brackets. Well, now you just download an app to get your bracket together. But the bottom line is some people get so serious about those brackets that they put together, they're in competitions with each other, they put money on it, They're watching to see their bracket win, not any team win. They don't care about the games. They care about the brackets. And there's really a whole science behind this. I think it's ESPN that labeled it bracketology. So if you're into the brackets, you're into bracketology. But whether you love March Madness or you didn't even know what March Madness was, there are more important things in this life, obviously. It's far more important to be of the right spiritual seed than to choose the correct seed in the bracket in the tournament. There are only only two possible family trees or seeds, spiritual seeds, that you can come from in this life. So that's all that really matters at the end of the day, is that you are from the correct spiritual seed. Because the godly line, the spiritual seed descending from God, is the only one that's going to win and have life eternal and bliss with God at the end of the day. So really what this sermon, what this text, what we're going to be looking at is which spiritual seed do you belong to? Whose family are you really a member of? Because if you're a child of God, then you must live confidently. That's really the thesis for this sermon. Because we're children of God, we must live confidently. Now again, before we read the text, there are a few major themes I want to point out for us to be aware of. So at my church, every time I preach, I've been walking through the book of 1 John. And John, in this letter, writes in very familial terms, very friendly, warm, family terms. He calls us children in this passage. He uses that word six times in this one short passage. Second John talks about appearing, both how Christ is going to appear and how we will appear when he comes. 
So again, that word comes up six times in this short passage. The third thing that John talks about is knowing. And he says knowing or to know or knowledge seven times in this short section. But he doesn't leave those three themes alone. He connects the necessary result of who we are as God's children, how we will appear on the last day, and what we must know with what we have to do. So the fourth major theme is knowing, or doing, excuse me. So those are the four major themes I want you to keep in mind as we read through the text. So with that, let's go to 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28, and we'll read through chapter 3, verse 10. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him at shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Lord God, in many ways, this is a wonderful text full of joy, but it is also a very challenging text, one that challenges us to examine where we are, to examine what family we are truly a part of and how we are truly living our lives. Lord, speak to us through your word this morning, convict us of sin, show us your greatness and your mercy, and draw us to greater love for you. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to look at two points this morning. The first point we're going to look at is that because we are children of God, we must know our heritage. We have to know who we, where we came from, who our Father is. So John begins with the command to abide in Christ. And this is the central command from which everything else in this passage is really flowing. So John has already talked about abiding in Christ several times in 1 John. But I think this section is really the grand thesis of abiding in Christ in this letter. The thesis for this sermon, I'll restate it, is that we must live confidently. Well, the only way to live confidently is to abide or to remain in Christ throughout your lives. But that still begs the question, though, doesn't it? What does it mean to abide in Christ? 
Well, that is what this entire section is really teaching. And only when we understand this concept of abiding in Christ can we then go and live confidently as believers. So the first thing we can learn about abiding in Christ is that it must lead to boldness. And we're not talking about telling that annoying neighbor exactly what you think of him. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the boldness to approach the throne of God without shame and without fear. So that you can say with the writer of Hebrews, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. You see, the ability to approach the throne of God with confidence is a direct result of abiding in Christ. There is no other cause or source for that sort of boldness. The second thing we can learn from abiding in Christ is the inverse of what we have just said. The Lord is holy. He is a consuming fire. Anything that is impure or unholy is going to be consumed before his throne. So you shouldn't have boldness if you're going to be consumed. So anything impure in us is going to lead to our shame on the last day. So in other words, the question we really have to ask is, are you ready to meet your God right now? Could you stand before the throne of God right now? Well, if yes, then it must be because you're abiding in Christ. But if not, then it means you are not currently abiding in Christ. So Jesus is coming back someday, whether it's tomorrow or 3,000 years from now. So in what state will you meet him? It's really the question. The third thing we must know about abiding in Christ is that it has to result in a certain type of living. If you're truly a child of God and the Spirit truly dwells within you, then there has to be definite fruit in your life. Plants drop seeds. And those seeds always produce the same kind of plant as the plant that dropped the seed. Each according to their kind, as Genesis says. And building on that basic law of creation, Jesus says in Matthew 7, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased trees bear bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. So Jesus is perfectly holy and righteous, and he is the root of every good branch and every good vine that produces fruit. There's absolutely no other source for good fruit. So if you see good fruit in somebody, true fruit, then that means one thing. They have their source in Christ, of abiding in Christ. So therefore, what we do is integrally connected to who we are as God's children. The fourth thing to know about abiding in Christ is to know who we are. This is really the carryover from what we were just talking about. You are children of God. You have been born of God. Our earthly parentage and our associations, they're not the determining factor of who we are or of what we will become. So what matters to us now is what world, what family we belong to. Because that's what's going to shape us and mold us and prepare us either for judgment or for glory on the last day. Now when we arrive at verses 1 through 3, John seems to go on a bit of a tangent to explore this concept of adoption that he's brought up, of sonship. Where he opens this subpoint with, Behold, what love the Father has given us. So don't disconnect that from what we just looked at. We're talking about doing righteousness, practicing righteousness, and that leads John into this interjection of joy. 
So we're privileged with the duty, with the right, and the joy of practicing righteousness because we are called children of God. And that we are. So to practice righteousness is to be righteous. And in Christ, we have both a righteous status and the only source of righteous living. And in this, we show that we are children of the living God. So we can't accept this with a sense of indifference or lethargy, like, oh, great, cool, glad I got that little banner, that's it, and then you just stop. We have to approach it with a sense of joy and of zeal in doing the will of God in our lives. It's a huge side effect, really, of our righteousness is righteous living. We are adopted, therefore we live righteously. But holy living is set up in pretty sharp contrast to the world around us, isn't it? The world lives by a different standard, and we're going to talk about that more in a moment. But for, for now, we have to realize that righteousness is completely foreign to this world. It is a sad statement to consider, but the truth is that the world does not know God. And if it does not know God, it's not going to know his children either. But next, John says, you may have noticed this in the text that he says, we are now children of God. But why does he say now? Well, I think now can be taken in two different ways. First, it may just be saying that at one time, we were not God's children. We were members of the world. We were rebels. But God has called us to himself and saved us out of of that world. Therefore, we are now children of God. Now, that's very biblical. There are a lot of passages that teach that. But if you go on into verse 2, I think it shows that that's not the primary thing John is talking about here. I think the better way to understand the now here is, is that it's a fulfillment of the joy we already have in doing righteousness as righteous children of God. So even now, we have the status of being righteous before God through Christ and the privilege of holy living. And while we enjoy these privileges already, what we're going to become when Christ appears will be far greater and more complete than the joy we already have now in abundance. We all know that we fall short of perfection now. I don't know about you, but it doesn't take me very long in the day to to realize that. But we have the promises of life already. We have the promises of sanctification and holiness already in Christ. Christ has already bought us and ensured our future glorified state. So we already have many, many privileges now, but there's some things we're still waiting on. There's some things that have not yet come to pass. And that's really what we call the already, not yet principle. We have so many of these promises already, so many of the privileges and the joys now, but we're waiting on the fullness of them for later. Matthew Henry explained the not yet aspect of this passage in this way. He says, the glory pertaining to the sonship and adoption is postponed and reserved for another world. The discovery of it here would put a stop to the current of affairs that must now proceed The sons of God must walk by faith and live by hope. In other words, if we have all those blessings now, we'll be content to stay here now. But the best blessings await us, and so we must look forward by faith. So when Christ appears, we are going to appear with him also. But it's not going to be like we are now, tinged with sin, fallen bodies that don't quite work right. We'll have new bodies like his glorious body. We don't know exactly what this means, but Scripture gives us some hints of what this future state is going to be like. 
Again, Matthew Henry is helpful when he explains the, the believer's body shall be like him in honor and power and glory. Their vile body shall be made like his glorious body. They shall be filled with life, light, and bliss from him. So did you notice the source and the cause of this grand transformation? John says that we will be changed because we shall see him as he is. So we will see Christ in all of his perfection and all of his glory in the same resurrected body that was pierced and crushed on our account. As one commentator put it, this will be a transformative sight. They shall be transformed into the same image by beatific view that they shall have of him. Seeing Christ will change us. So one day fate shall be made sight, and that sight will entirely renew us into the image of Jesus Christ. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll look at verse 51 and on. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'll read verses 51 through 57. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we consider these glorious truths, it's really all the more glorious when we consider how mankind began. It started with man, right, in the garden, in the image of God, living, walking in communion with God. But then what happened? That man fell into sin. That man disobeyed God, and with him all of mankind fell into sin. So while still made in the image of God, man's reflection of God was tarnished. It was diminished in man. It was distorted. But the purpose of God all along was to redeem that image, to remake it, into that which, that which was damaged to reform it to the way it should be, to image himself. To once again place mankind in perfect fellowship and communion with himself. It's what Romans 8 says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the glorification of the children of God is nothing less than the total restoration of perfect fellowship and union with God Almighty. Seeing Christ is the end goal and final consummation of the entire Christian faith. It's what theologians call the beatific vision. And it entails all the promises of God to his people on that day. When we see Christ face to face, they'll be realized. So on that day when we walk in a new garden with Christ, never again to fall into sin or temptation, never again to grow ill or weak, never again to feel the sting of death, 
and to live every day beyond the possibility of ever again falling into sin or disobedience. To hope in Christ is to purify and prepare yourself for that day. Christ has already given us the deposit of being righteous, of living righteously and being called children of God. We have that now. And that is your heritage as a believer. So now we have to turn from our heritage to the calling we receive along with or because of our heritage. So this is the second point. Because we're children of God, we must know our calling. And this is really looking at verses 4 through 10 of chapter 3. So the second half of the passage for today brings in the enemy and his kingdom, but also serves as a warning to the people of God. And the warning is meant to show us the true nature and the severity of sin. So God is a God of order. He is a God of law. In the Garden of Eden, he gave a law forbidding Adam and Eve to eat the fruit of the one tree. You go forward in history after the fall, he gave Israel the Ten Commandments and numerous other laws, including the ceremonial law. So Jesus comes and you expect, oh, maybe he'll, you know, give us a new law, replace the law. But rather than removing it or changing it, he fulfills it and confirms it. He explains more in depth of what it means to follow God's law. So the moral law of God is really a reflection of his personal character. It is himself for us to see and learn from. That is what the law is for. So therefore, those who break his law, who break the law of God, are pursuing lawlessness because they're breaking the ultimate standard. They're going against the very character of God. To practice one is to practice the other because sin is nothing less than a declaration of war on the holy lawgiver. So God would be right to condemn every man, woman, and child to ever live for breaking his law. But instead, the Father sent his only Son, Jesus, into the world to remove the sins of his people. Indeed, he was the only one who could make a satisfactory atonement for his people because in him, as John tells us, there was no sin. He appeared for the sake of the children of God to redeem them from their sin. So when we arrive at verse 6, we're brought back to the concept of abiding in Christ. We already saw in this text that living holy lives by faith is the way to abide in him. Well, now John presents the same truth, but in the negative. You see, one cannot live in sin habitually. One cannot abide in sin habitually. Another way to say that is that your life cannot be characterized by ongoing sin. So if someone was to look at your whole life and make a summary of it, shorten it up, brief statement, it cannot be dominated by the phrase sinner. Now there's a common phrase in our culture, or in, at least in church culture, that we are sinners saved by grace. Now I know what people are trying to say when they use this phrase. They mean that they are undeserving of God's grace and they are humbled by the love he has shown them. And that, that's a good thing. That's a good attitude to have. But the truth of the matter is that you are no longer a citizen of the world. The devil is not your father. God is. You cannot continue in sin and know God. Therefore, I will argue this. You are not a sinner saved by grace. You are a saint who was once a sinner. Your identity is new because you are new creations entirely in Christ. On the other hand, we have to be careful not to go into license. It's like, oh, we're redeemed in Christ. Now we can do whatever we want. Yay. 
Christian liberty is not an excuse to live in sin. And John cannot be any clearer in this passage about that. If you continue in sin, then it is only clear that you're not really a saint. Abiding in Christ makes you unable to live in sin. And if you think that you can continue in the faith, that you can continue following Christ and also seeking after the world and sin, then you are sorely mistaken. Continuing in sin really means that you have not seen Christ and that you do not know him. So either you are God's and you behave as such, or you belong to the devil and you act accordingly. So those who practice righteousness are righteous because of Christ, and those who practice evil are evil because they're children of the devil. And this is really the sharp division we see in this text between the two seeds, the seed of God and the seed of the devil. And this is really where the idea of family heritage shows through, is in the life lived. The seed of the devil and mankind produces evil, while the seed of God and his children produces fruit, righteousness, life. So our lives are really the clearest evidence of our true nature, of what our hearts are really like. If you are God's child, then you will behave like your father. You will take on his traits. You will take on his character. You will model to all your family lineage because you will love what he loves. The same is sadly true of the children of the devil. They take on his wicked nature and they dive into lawlessness. Well, the seed planted in the heart will never fail to grow and produce a harvest. But the question then becomes, what type of harvest is it going to produce? And until we see that fruit of either good or evil, we don't know how to tell the sinner from the saint. We cannot know the heart as God can, but we can see the fruit of a life. And the Bible teaches very clearly that outward fruit is an, is an indicator of the internals of the heart. So you may ask, how does this all relate to the point we're under? What are we talking about? What does this have to do with our calling as children of God? Well, I think it really has everything to do with how we live. One of the most important things we're called to do as Christians is to examine our own hearts and to put our sin to death. We are called to and indeed required to live holy lives before a God. And this God says, be holy for I am holy. For you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So don't take that to mean that you have to be perfect on your own or that you have to earn your way to heaven. We've all sinned, and even in Christ, we're going to continue to sin until we die or Christ returns. But you must be fighting sin. You must be turning from sin and seeking after righteousness. You cannot be continually dominated by our sin and enslaved to it as believers. Now, that does not mean that if you've ever had a period of serious or ongoing sin that you are lost. But it does mean that you must repent and confess your sins to Christ, who is the only source of righteousness and forgiveness. And I think that's what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2, when he tells us to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When we think about our Christian walk with Christ, we can really err in two directions. Either we become lax and we become lazy and we neglect to drive out the sin in our lives or we beat ourselves in the face constantly so badly that we're really pursuing spiritual masochism instead of resting in Christ and the forgiveness we have there. He is the one who works in us and defeats our sin. And this goes back to verses 29 and verse 1 where John was overwhelmed with the privilege we have of living righteous lives. 
Walking with Christ is not a burden. It's really freedom. So it's only as we turn from our sin and to Christ can we really be freed from our sin and begin living as we were created to live. Only then can we truly know the joy and the peace that comes with our salvation. So who are you? What characterizes you more than anything else? If I asked someone close to you to describe you, what would they say? Well, he really loves UNC basketball. He liked Ultimate Frisbee years ago. Will they just say you're a nice person? Or will they say you love Christ? If we are truly children of God, then our greatest and our most defining characteristic must be that our identity is holy and completely in Christ. So if we are not seeking after Christ and resting in Him alone for our salvation, for our life, for our purpose every day, then we are not abiding in Him as we ought. Let's conclude here. If you're like me, then it does not always feel like you're making good progress in your sin, right? You may feel like you're losing the fight at times. Even worse, you may not be fighting at all. But worse still, you may not care that you're not fighting at all. So if you do not care about fighting your sin, then this passage is a call to you to believe in the gospel and to turn from your sin. Because if that is where you are, then you are not a believer and you have not been born of God. Or maybe you've entered a time of backsliding and your faith is growing weak as you give in to sin and you begin to sit in the filth of it. You're walking a dangerous road and it leads to death and to judgment. So you need to obey the Apostle Paul when he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And turn from your sin because as James says, sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. But for those who are in the thick of the fight against sin right now, And want to repeat the words of Paul in Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Remember that Christ has already won the victory for you. It is not up to you to conquer the devil or defeat sin on your own. Christ has already done that. Paul says only a few verses later in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, How can that be? John gives us one amazing reason in our text for this morning. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world to save us from our sin and to destroy the works of the devil. You know me, you know that I really love Tolkien. I love all things Tolkien, especially the Silmarillion. Well, there's an off-quoted line in Lord of the Rings from Sam Gamgee, and he asks Gandalf if everything sad will come untrue. The truth of the matter is that everything sad will undoubtedly come untrue. Remember that the only way this is possible is that Jesus has totally, finally, and thoroughly defeated sin, death, and the devil. So as you struggle with sin in this life and you're discouraged, begin to struggle with hope because Christ has already won the battle against sin for you. Your salvation is already secure. We are merely working out our salvation until the day we take full possession of it in glory. So believer, Christ has called you out of sin and death to freedom and joy in following his law. It is a joyful and a blessed calling we have to live holy lives as children of the Almighty God. Therefore, we return to the thesis we began with. Live confidently in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that through Jesus Christ, through his blood, we have access to the throne of grace. 
We do not approach it fearfully. We do not approach it trembling, but with boldness through him. Lord, thank you for this. We rejoice in this. Help us to rejoice in this every day as we follow your laws. We seek to live righteous lives, not to earn our salvation, not to earn some standing, but because we've been privileged, gifted with the ability to do so through Christ and through the spirit indwelling in us. But we ask all this in the name of your son. Amen.